Glenn Cauley, and, well, if you don't have one of these flyers, I would encourage you to take one. We have them up back. Please take them and, and hold on to it. You can mark it off as each speaker presents their lesson. Uh, tonight we have Brother Glenn Cauley and Brother Kerry Duke. Um, now, Glenn, we had the, well, Kerry first. We met him first before we met Glenn, but two great men. Uh, Kerry's been here before, if you recall his lessons, and a uh, uh, very capable preacher very capable teacher, and he works with David, David, there he is right there, David Hill out there, and previously with Malcolm Hill, David's father, out there to Tennessee Bible College. Carrie is vice president, and I forgot what the, what's he do, dean of online, yeah, he's a great guy, <laughs> which you are going to appreciate. Remember, may have uh, remembered his wife, Leanne, and uh, Leanne since passed, but wonderful lady, just as when you meet Lisa, Hill, you'll understand that, yeah, she's pretty good too, as David said so. Glenn Cauley um, had the opportunity to meet down at Polishing the Pulpit first, and I saw these classes on eldership. I said, well, let me, let me go in and sit in these things and, and see how that goes. It's a working class. It scared me like nothing else. Working class. Glenn facilitates a discussion of some real-life scenarios based on elderships. And he'll break a class into various elderships temporarily. And uh, we resolve issues. And then we present our lesson, uh, uh, present the uh, resolution that we'd come up with. Glenn, is pre Glenn was uh, an elder down in West Huntsville, correct? West Huntsville, Alabama, uh, where he, uh, 10 years ago, uh, well, he was a, an elder for 10 years. And now he preaches full time for them. It was kind of a temporary 10-year measure that he did. But I'm sure they benefited from that greatly, Glenn. Um, two years, a year and a half ago, we went to Israel, as most of you know, and uh, Glenn and Cindy, his wife, who could not make it for this trip, um, brought the lessons. We would have devotionals all the time out there, and, and Glenn would present those devotionals. Had a great time with the colleagues. They're a riot. you got to get to know them. That means, for you younger folks, it means they're funny. They're good people. Glenn will present the lesson tonight on Elijah taken from 1 Kings 16. So as you turn your Bibles there, 1 Kings 16, so we have Brother Glenn Cauley will present tonight's lesson. May I just tell you how glad I am to be here. I've been looking forward to this ever since Rob invited me to come. You live in, you already know, you live in such a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. My favorite vacation to take with Mrs. Colley is uh, New England, and we've done it several times. Not fancy. What we do is we, we fly into some airport, I don't care which, and we rent a car, I don't care which, and we just, and we just drive up through the little towns, and, and uh, it's just the best. I just really love it. I think this idea about having a lectureship on Elijah and Elisha is just terrific. And I hope that you're going to enjoy every single lesson. I'm confident that you will. I hope you'll bring your Bibles every time. Tonight I want you to open your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to start in the end of 16, then most of the time it's going to be in 17. If you want an outline of the sermon, you may have it by leaving this passage open on your lap. To get to talk about Elijah is a, is a rather wonderful thing. I think that I can sustain the assertion that Elijah was the greatest prophet of all. How would you argue that? Well, I mean, you know, you got David in there, the prophet David, 
Who would you say was the greatest prophet? Well, I would argue from Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who is there with my Lord? Well, it's, it's Moses and Elijah. And the, the silence of heaven is interrupted by the voice of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Now, what was the point of that? What was the, the point was that the New Testament's going to mean more than the old, the old law of Moses. It's going to mean more than the period of the prophets. God's going to communicate now through his son. And we have the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. And how remarkable is that? Those, those apostles, Peter, James, and John, are going to have to face some awful things. Lot's going to be required of them. And it was important for them to see this, to witness this. Peter got sort of nervous about it, but to see this. Because they're going to have to preach in a way that may require putting their lives on the line. How are you going to convince them to do that? Well, I, I guess the Mount of Transfiguration would just about do it, wouldn't it? They know that they know that they know. And Elijah was a part of that, Prophet Elijah. So, this, this lesson that's been assigned to me is about three miracles uh, connected to Elijah that are in this, this chapter, chapter 17. Now, I count about seven or eight miracles that are attached to Elijah. You have, uh, of course, you have chapter 17, so you're going to have the drought, and you have the widow's oil and meal, you have the widow's son. You get to chapter 18, you have the two altars, you know, prophet, uh, or, or to uh, Baal, and one to Jehovah God, and there's that dramatic miracle that's attached to him there. At the end of chapter 18, you have the rain come after that three-and-a-half-year drought, and that's just, that's just amazing. And then in 2 Kings chapter 1, which I plan to talk about tomorrow, Lord willing, we're going to talk about 120, I'm sorry, 102 uh, men who were slain by fire uh, by the word of Elijah. And then the last one in 2 Kings chapter 2 is when Elijah takes off his mantle and he dips it into the Jordan River and it opens up and dry land is there. So you have these familiar miracles of Elijah. But the three that I want to talk about, again, are in 1 Kings chapter 17. We start in 16 and verse 31. This is about the daddy of Ahab. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Excuse me, would you please remember that he was king of the Sidonians. I want to make a little point about that in a few minutes. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more, listen to these words, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. How do you like that? So, we get to chapter 17. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. By the way, this is when Elijah is first introduced. Now, he's a little bit like Melchizedek in that I don't, I don't know anything about, about, his, about his life prior to this. How did he grow up? With whom did he grow up? What were, what were his parents' names? I don't know. I don't know about that. This is how much I know. He's a Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead. Said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows, by, or flows into the Jordan. 
ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from that brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, I want you to think about this first miracle. It has to do with rain. Powerful God you serve. The very idea that he could operate the rain. And there were times in reference to idolatry when he would do this, when he would just shut off the rain, just like turning off a faucet. No rain. I I, I never complain about rain. I, I never do. I guess when I was younger, I would sometimes. It was inopportune for it to come, spoil my plans, whatever. I'd, but I don't do that anymore. Sometimes I think about the manna. Rain and manna have a lot in common, don't they? Manna is something without which the Israelites could not live. And it was from the hand of God. It was benevolence from the hand of God. What do you reckon rain is? How long do you suppose we'd last without the rain? I don't know how they lasted... Three and a half years. You know, James 5 and 17 says it was three and a half years. I suppose, and Rob, when we went to Israel, we saw these mighty cisterns. And in the rainy time that lasted a very short amount of time, very short period, those cisterns would fill up to the brim. And you could sustain people for a long time. I suppose that was how they did this. But it was three and a half years. God just turned off the rain. And he did it with his voice. Now, the Bible has a good bit to say about rain. So in, in Job chapter 38 and verse 28... Job just suffering something awful. And and the Bible says he begins to question God. Now, I get a little trembly when I read chapter 38. God says, uh, who are you, Job, to question me? Who are you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Does that send chills over you? It's the almighty God talking to him. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he said, has the reign a father? Oh, oh, yes, the answer to that is yes. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. And, and the Lord said, God causes his son to shine on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the just and the unjust. That's King James. He sends his reign, his reign to fall. Sometimes people ask the question, you know, did God just set this on automatic pilot where the rain just comes as it will periodically, or does he determine this? I don't know the answer to that exactly. But what I do know is that is in his reign, and he operates that, and I'm glad he does. We probably would mess that up. There are times when God would turn the rain off, and sometimes he'd turn it on. I mean, you have Genesis chapter 6, right? The flood of Noah. What happens when the hydro system goes out of whack? What happens when he doesn't do it with the right regularity or the typical regularity? And the answer is, either way you slice it, we can't live. We can't survive. Now, think about the will of God. And before I leave this miracle, I want to talk about this for just a minute. The will of God is spoken of in Scripture in three different ways, at least three different ways. You have the intentional will of God. Now, by that I mean, you could call it something else, I suppose, but I think about the intentional will of God in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. You're familiar with that. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering to us, not willing... Ready? That any should perish. You say, wait a minute. God's not willing that any should perish, and yet the Bible teaches ultimately more people are going to be lost than saved. How do you explain that if that's the will of God? Well, that's the intentional will of God. That's what I mean by intentional. It is in his intention, his desire, that nobody would be saved, uh, be lost, everybody would be saved. The rest of the verse says about repentance. People would come to repentance. There's the intentional will of God. There's the conditional will of God. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9, verse 8 and 9. 
right? Because he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. He that believes in this baptized shall be saved. Well, so there's a, a promise of God. God is going to make that happen. But it's conditional. It's a conditional will of God. But then that third one, and this is the big one. Are you ready for this? Because this is applicable to Elijah being able to say, I come from the Lord God, and the sky is not going to bring forth rain until I say so. Power of God. That's the ultimate will of God. It is the will of God which demonstrates his power, which is not flexible, and there's no being in heaven upon earth, heaven or upon earth, that can stop him. No power great enough to thwart the purposes of your God. That's the ultimate will of God. So, 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Will it? I say, will it? Yeah, it will. It will. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the, the judgment. Is that going to happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, that's the ultimate will of God. That is to say there's no force in heaven or on earth that's going to be able to stop it. That's the ultimate will of God. And what you have here in reference to this reign is a God so powerful, the only true and living God, so powerful that even the rain obeys him. Now, you've got to appreciate that Baal was the God of fertility. I mean, so, you know, you look at Baal and people said, Baal was such a popular God. I want to talk some more about that tomorrow in my session, if the Lord wills. But he was such a popular God. They would attribute... The growth of the farms to Baal. Look at trees, and they would see Baal in the trees. In the streams, the mountain streams, they'd see Baal in the mountain streams. God of fertility. There was one inscription on some, some stone that has been discovered, and it's a, it's a sketch of Baal, and he's holding a lightning bolt in his hand. Oh, he was impressive, wasn't he? It's all a figment of man's imagination. It was just an idol. It was a segment of their Freud. I mean, it was just all they created. That they just made that out of nothing. We'll talk some more about idolatry later. But here he is with this, as if he can control. So you, see, what I'm telling you is that when Elijah stood up and said, I come from the Lord God, and it's not going to rain, he smacked the face of Baal. That's what he did. It's very much like what God did with the plagues, the ten plagues on Egypt. Very, very similar. You, you can go through those plagues. And, and you can attribute, but not without much difficulty, you can connect every single one of those plagues to one of the gods in Egypt. Water turned to blood, frogs, lice, flies, the rain of the cattle, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn, and every one of them can be attached to one of those Egyptian gods. So it is right here. And I'm telling you, he just nailed Obeo. Go ahead and stop him. Go ahead. Stop him if you can. God has ultimate will that will never be thwarted. You must remember that. You think about the Word of God. You must think about it as ultimate truth. It is absolute. It is universal. It's, it's absolute because, I mean, it's universal because the Great Commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Matthew chapter 25, before him shall be gathered all nations, and he'll separate them one from another as a sheep divides his sheep, a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. What I'm saying is it's universal, but it's also absolute because it deals with eternity, right? It's absolute. And you serve a, a God whose will, his ultimate will, will never, ever be thwarted. It's not going to rain. And it didn't for three and a half years. Now, that's the first miracle. Drop down with me to number two. We're going to go to, to verse eight now. And I'm going to take the time, if you don't mind, to this, this time. I won't do it tomorrow, but I want to read each of these three miracles so that you really get it. Now, verse eight. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath. 
which belongs to Sidon. Now remember that that he had been fed by the ravens, and then this stream at Cherith had gotten his water, so he was sustained by God. But the drought, of course, dries up eventually, dries up that stream. And I, I don't know, maybe Elijah thought this is the end. My sustenance is gone. I'm, I'm done for. But of course, God knew about the widow. He'd already made an arrangement with this widow or about this widow. Now, what I wanted to say about Jezebel's daddy. Jezebel is a princess, and her daddy is the king of Sidonians. Did you notice that? And the widow at Zarephath. Zarephath about nine miles south of the main city of Sidon. And I just think this is remarkable. Now, I'm going to throw this out to you, and then you just think about it later on. I won't develop it too much now, but it's a great thought process. Why do you suppose God picked her? God picked her, you know. He handpicked her to be the one to whom Elijah the prophet would go. And you're going to have this amazing test that Elijah is going to put her through, and then he's going to bless her in a way that, I mean, who during a time of drought and famine, who would not have liked to have this blessing on them? Don't you suppose there were a bunch of Hebrew widows who would have liked to have had this blessing? Yeah. I don't know all the, it's in the chambers of the heart of God and things that he would decide. That's not my business. That's his business. But I just think it's fascinating that he goes down to a Sidonian where you have Jezebel who introduced idolatry into Israel. And, and oh, the wickedness, the darkness. You think about Ahab. You know, when you know that they together introduced, brought in, and popularized Baal worship into Israel and all the corruption, the awful things that happened as a result of that, you just, just have to tell me that, and I, I really know enough about, about old Ahab. I, I got him figured out. It's kind of like saying, uh, Lynn, I want, to meet you, I want you to meet this gentleman, and he's an abortion doctor. Okay, well, you know what? I, I really don't want him for my next-door neighbor because he makes me very nervous. I know something about his moral system, and I, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be, you know what? I don't, I don't want to buy a used car from that man. I don't trust him, right? I, I know enough about old Ahab and Jezebel and, and I just think it's fascinating that this widow who's going to care for the prophet of God was from the, the territory over which Jezebel's daddy would have had jurisdiction. How do you like that? Maybe it's simply to say that you mustn't think that you're alone when you serve God. How can it be that there are people who love God and serve God among this corrupt culture? Well, now hold on a minute. There may be people you don't know about. Did you ever consider how many congregations of the Lord's church may exist of which we are unaware around the world? I mean, you, you, you don't, the Lord's church doesn't have a headquarters, you know. We don't pay dues into some world headquarters, national headquarters. This is the Lord's church governed by the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Isn't it very probable that, that in places we've never been, never even heard of, there, there are people worshiping according to the New Testament, the pattern? Isn't that very probable? He found this widow who had some faith in God. I guess she's like Rahab. I don't, I don't suppose she knew a lot about him. I don't know her, but God chose her. All right, so what I want to talk about in reference to this, this miracle of this, this widow um, is this. Let's go ahead and read on, and then I'll develop the points. Arise, verse 9, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. I don't know what the word commanded means. I, I spent some time working on that word. I do not know if in this case he, com 
He communi God communicated with this widow, or it simply means he had selected her. Not sure about that. But here's what we do know. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. Don't underestimate that. That's a pretty big deal in a time of drought. How much water does she have? And as she was going to get it, so she's got some faith in God. She's got some faith in the fact that Elijah is the prophet of God. She's accepting that because she's doing something rather remarkable. She goes to get him the water. Please, he said as she was going, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, she's, she pulls back, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And, I, and say, I'm gathering a couple of sticks. I don't know how much fire you could build out a couple of sticks, but it can't be much because she doesn't have much to cook. That I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. And this is going to send chills over you. If you don't know what the next line is, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. Now, God took care of these, this widow woman. That's the point I want you to get. And I want to say this to you. In your life, you must remember that God cares about how we treat widows. Never underestimate the weight of this. God has always been, Old Testament and New Testament, he's always been very serious about how we treat widows. Let me just, if, you, if you'll bear with me, let's go to a couple of passages and let me just demonstrate that. I won't spend a long time on this, but I want you to really take this in. So I'm in Exodus chapter 22, verse 22, and it says this, You shall not afflict, afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. You reckon God is serious about how we take care of widows? Go to Deuteronomy. I mean, let's go now to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 17. It says, You shall not pervert justice due the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. When you get to the New Testament, you have the same principle. In James chapter 1, remember, 
Pure religion, undefiled before God the Father, is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Visit means what you think. It's not, it's not just drop by and say, how can I have a glass of tea? It, it means to care for, to see to their needs. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, you have a, a great discussion about widows in the Lord's church. Now, you're probably familiar with this. Can I just touch on this? Because I think that we live in a time when it's very, very popular to want somebody else to take care of our widows. I mean, by that, the widows in our families. You know, there are laws right now. My, my people are, my parents are 87. And they're not in very good health right now. And so I hope you'll remember them in your prayers. Did you know there are laws in place to prevent people from hiding their assets uh, when they're anticipating uh, being in a nursing home or needing that kind of a care as elderly people. Let's hide the, ass, the family assets. Of course I'm going to hide them because if I don't, I won't have an inheritance to give to my children. Right? That's, does that sound all right to you? You know there's a problem with that. The, uh, the obvious, obvious implication of that is that I, I really want somebody else to take care of my parents. I want somebody else to have worked and provided so that they can take care of my parents. I want them to pay for my parents instead of me taking care of my parents. And may maybe it applies to the church too. The, the very idea that I would say, look, the church has a treasury. I, I would like very much for that. I think that, that, that the church ought to love widows enough that they will take care of my aged grandmother. Hold on a minute. Apostle Paul already smelled this coming. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he talks about that. If, a, if a, any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home. I love that phrase. Your Christianity is not merely wrapped up in coming to the worship assembly. I'm not diminishing that. That's terribly important. But this talks about showing piety. That's faithfulness to God. Showing piety at home. Let them first show piety at home and to repay their parents. For this is good and acceptable before God. What that means is... The church that does right, and somebody comes and says, my grandmother really needs uh, help. The first question isn't how much should we give her. The first question is, what are you all doing about it? Right? You know why? Because that's about piety. You need to repay your parents. You need to repay your grandparents by making sure that they're cared for in their old age. And you say, well, yeah, but... What if it takes a significant part of my savings? You better do it. You better do that. It's not other people's responsibility. It's your responsibility. And the impressive thing here is that, that God saw to her. Now, I understand the fact, and I'm not diminishing from the fact that, that there are circumstances where widows, and this is what the Bible teaches, widows who are widows indeed, and the church ought to take care of them. You go to India sometime, and I've been there, and I, I think it's very impressive. It's not at all uncommon for those congregations to have a house somewhere, a house that is for the widows, and they're fully supported. Now, they'll use those widow women to take care of the orphanage sometimes, which I think is a terrific idea, right? Old women love babies hugging them. All of them do. And you can make them useful that way. But they have a house, and they make sure the church brings them rice and food. They've got sustenance there in the widow's house. And that's what First Timothy 5 is teaching us. So... I just want to make that observation from this passage. But the second thing, that before I leave this point, though, is that I want you to be impressed with the fact that sometimes God tests his people, tests the faith of people, 
in their darkest hour. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Is there anybody in this room who's going through a dark hour right now? You must not think that because life is very challenging right now, maybe the hardest time of your life, that God will not test you during this time. This, this is a test that came on the widow woman. The widow at Zarephath. She, she was getting a couple of sticks to cook what little meal and oil she had to give to her boy and little for her. And then, and then she was expecting that's it. We have no more and no way to get it and we're going to die. I mean, this is a dark hour. This is a very dark hour. It was at this time that God sent the prophet Elijah to say, I want you to make me a little cake first. Now, I want to ask you a question. How's your faith? How's your faith doing? And is it, see, you, you can't wait until the dark hour and build your faith in. Is it important to be faithful to Bible classes and worship? Of course, I know here you are, Friday night, coming to a lectureship. God bless you. I'm just so glad to see you. But I'm going to tell you something. You better be studying your Bible. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, you know. You better be studying your Bible. Because when that dark time comes, and you know what? It often comes in lives of people. Maybe in your life right now. You're going to need that faith to face whatever challenges come your way. And maybe things that you never, ever thought about before. And yet here they are. I'll tell you something else, too, is that in the next chapter, Elijah... He doesn't know it right now. In chapter 17, when he's facing the widow, he doesn't know it right now. He knows what he's putting her into when he says, make me a little cake first. Now, he knows the power of God, and he knows what's going to happen, but he, he knows he's binding her into this very difficult test from God in a dark, dark hour. But I can tell you what's going to happen in chapter 18. They said he's going to go into the battle of the gods, and before that, before that time is all finished, he's going to cry out to God and... Wish he was dead. It'll be a dark hour. It'll be a dark hour. All right, here's number three. Here's the final one. I want to go to verse 17 for this one. It's the raising of the widow's son. This is the third miracle of Elijah in this chapter. Now, it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. Now, I, want you, I don't want you to picture a son that's this big. I want you to picture a son that's this big. Elijah's going to carry him up the stairs directly in our discussion. So he, he apparently is a small child. And, and so he falls sick. Now just try to reason through this. There are times in your life when you pray to God and, and the prayer that you've prayed is not realized. Is that a true statement? Ever happened to you? Yo, wait, 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 wait. I'm, talking, I'm not just talking about some sort of superficial prayer. I'm talking about the deep ones where you cry out to God and you, you just beg Him. Did you ever pray and you repeat the sentence over and over and over and over again, begging Him? And here's this, this widow woman. You put yourself in her shoes. And sometimes what happens is that, that you're in that dark time and you look up to heaven and you say, you know what happens? I don't know. You people live in the mountains. You ever have trouble with your cell phone reception? And when you do that, what do you say? You say, can you, can you hear me? And I'm telling you, people, it's not uncommon for people to do that while staring up into heaven. Am I right about that? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? And here is... I heard a young woman say recently, who's in a very, very dark time, 
I wonder what kind of sin I must have committed that God is allowing this to happen to me. She didn't commit any sin that made God. But her heart's broken. Here's the widow at Zarephath. And she listens to the prophet. And do you know what she's just done? She, she's given that man some of her meal and oil. She cooked him a little cake first and handed it over to him and watched him eat it. Just imagine what she has sacrificed to try to obey the God of Elijah. And then her son dies prematurely. And what will she say? Well, put yourself in her shoes. What's going to come out of her mouth? Verse 18, so she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? She, she can't understand it. She, what you're seeing is the voice of grief and pain and she's bewildered. She's given food to the prophet of God and now her son has been prematurely dead. And there, there it is. I don't know how long she expected him to, to last or for her to last, but it was longer than this. And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. You understand that, don't you? James 2 and 26, the body without the spirit is dead. You know what death is? It's not just when your heart stops, it's when the soul can no longer live in this house, which is your physical body. You're not your physical body, you're your soul. That's, that's the essence of you. And one day, I do not know when, but your physical body will no longer be a suitable house for your soul. Your soul's going to take its leave, and ladies and gentlemen, that's death. And that's how come you have this wording here. Oh Lord my God, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God. The word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. I want you to turn in your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 7. Now, I have a few minutes left, and I'd like to take them from Matthew chapter 7. I want to, I want to finish this lecture with, with something which I hope will be terribly practical, very practical in our prayer lives. There's a tension in some passages about prayer. I don't know if we would use that word typically or not, but that's, that's the word that I'm using. There's some tension and so, verse 7 of Matthew chapter 7, this is the third chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus then gives these words, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be open unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. Now, when you read those verses, does it give you any pause? Well it, well, it does to me. Maybe we've resolved in our minds some, some way, but because I mean, he, he's talking about prayer. It's the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, who is he talking to? You say, well, maybe it's the miraculous time. And so he says, ask and you'll receive. 
Well, that's not always true, though. And the way he says it, it sounds like it's going to always be true, and I don't get that. How do you, how do you resolve that tension? I mean, I don't between what I know from my own prayer life and what he said here in the Sermon on the Mount and the people to whom he's he's speaking. I mean, who is it? We go back to the chapter four and at the end of the chapter, and you, it's just multitudes of people people who had witnessed or heard about Jesus' miracles, and so they assemble. They're curious. So you get some people out there who are disciples and some people who are hopefully future disciples, and he's teaching them what some people call the preamble to the kingdom, the church. He's getting people ready with his doctrine. He's teaching them. And in that amazing sermon, he says, ask and you'll receive and seek and you shall find and knock and the door will be open to you. And it's not the only time I mean, that, that you have this kind of frankness promise that if, if you ask, you'll receive. You get Mark chapter 11, for example, and Jesus says that if you ask believing, you can say to this mountain, be removed, and that's what's going to happen. The mountain will move. Now, I don't think he was teaching his disciples about a literal mountain. It was a figure of speech. And you'd talk to a teacher who could, who could resolve some very difficult problems, and you would say, like we do sometimes, you'd say, he can move mountains. But I tell you, the principle is still the same. The principle is that the Lord said, you, you pray and ask for this, and I, whatever you ask for, you're going to get it. How do, you, how do you resolve that? John 15, 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done to you. Now hold on a minute. I'm going to answer this, but I want to trouble you a little bit more before I do. So then you, then you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and here's beginning about verse 7, and you have the Apostle Paul. Because you might resolve it and say, well, you know, it was the miraculous age, and he's talking to people who could perform miracles, and so that, that's what it means, that they could ask anything and it would be done. No, that's not the answer. It is not the answer. Here's Paul. He's got a thorn in the flesh. The Bible says he prayed three times to the Lord. The apostle Paul, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And so he prays to God to have, have the thorn removed. And he pleaded, the Bible says, he pleaded with him. That word pleaded in the original means to get up near, to get up close to, and to beg. What was God's uh, response to that? Mm, my grace is sufficient for you. Out of weakness, my strength is perfected. How about that? The answer was no. Oh, but it's not going to get easier. Wait a minute. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. But now I, I go to, to Matthew 26 and verse 39, and here's our Lord who is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you remember the prayer, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thine, thy will be done. So, wait a minute. Wait a minute, but Jesus went to the cross. Yeah, but first he prayed not to. If there was anybody in the whole planet, if there was anybody who, who God would never refuse in a prayer, surely it would be the second person in the Godhead. Surely it would be Jesus. And yet, Romans 8 and 32, the Apostle Paul would point back to this and say, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Shall he not with him freely give us all things? How do you, how do you resolve that? Let me do one more. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. And you have those Christians there in Jerusalem, and you've got James and Peter who have been imprisoned by Herod. And, and Herod kills James with the sword. He's a Christian. And where are the, where are the Christians, the, the, the church of Christians? They're over at Mary's house, the mother of John Mark, 
That's where they are, and they're praying. They're in the house praying for Peter, who is still over there. And what God did, I mean, don't you suppose they prayed for James too? Prayed for James, prayed for Peter. But God saw fit to, to release James into the clutches of the evil Herod. God's going to deal with Herod one day soon, he did. But, but James was killed with a sword, and yet he spares Peter. Miraculously delivers him from that prison by an angel. And yet the prayer surely was to release both of them. How do you explain it? And the answer is there is an explanation. There is. And you've got to grasp this and you've got to use it in your own life. And when you do, then all the doubt's going to go away. And here's what it says. I'm in James chapter 1 and verse 5. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it, it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. He that doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro. Don't you think that he shall receive anything of the Lord? How about that? You ask nothing doubting. I mean, that's, you, you, you're asking that, that for which you pray is going to be done, and don't be doubting about it. You know that it will happen. How do you resolve it? The answer is Jesus resolved it in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, Matthew 26, 39. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That is to say, listen closely, that in the prayer of a faithful Christian, every single time we pray, we pray in faith. And the overriding principle in all of our prayers is summarized in these words. Not my will, but thine be done. Now, hold that. I'm in Matthew chapter 7, now verse 9. See, now, so the first, verse 7 and 8 says, Ask and you'll receive, seek, you'll find, knock, you, it'll be opened. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. But then verse 9 says, For which of you, if his son asked for bread, would he give him a stone? If he asked for a fish, would you give him a serpent? Now, what's that? Why? What? How does that relate to that? And the answer is that God's your father. That's the answer. He's your father. Well, look, I mean, some of you have children. Many of you have children. What, what's, well, what about uh, if your 14-year-old boy said, Daddy, would you sacrifice anything for me? How would you respond to that? But if I ask you, would you sacrifice anything for your children? When my children were growing up, it wasn't uncommon for me to say to them, I love you enough to die for you. I, I wouldn't flinch. I'd give my life for you. That's how much I love you. It's the truth. Still the truth. Suppose a father then said, well, son, you know, I would sacrifice anything for you. Well, daddy, I'm 14 now, and I'd like to have a 400cc ninja motorcycle. <laughs> and you said you'd sacrifice anything for me. Is he going to give it to him? Uh, no. No, he's not. How? I mean, he may laugh at that boy. How do you resolve that? You know, see, but the point, the point is you don't have any, maybe it's paradoxical, but you don't have any trouble resolving that. You understand that? It's, that's perfectly plain to everybody in this room, isn't it? Your 13-year-old daughter comes and says, Daddy, would you sacrifice anything for me? Well, honey, you know that I would. I would sacrifice anything for you. I love you more than I love life. Well, Daddy... I'm 13 years old now, and what I would like is to go to the mall 
on Friday night and I want to go by myself and spend a little while. And you know, we only live two miles from the mall and I'd like to walk home by myself at 10 o'clock. What are you going to say, Daddy? You're going to say, you're cray cray. <laughs> there is no way on God's green earth I'm going to let you do that. You're not going to forget it. I thought you just said you'd sacrifice anything for me. See, there's nobody in this room that has any trouble figuring that out. Nobody. Everybody understands that completely. And those are not inconsistent. He would sacrifice anything. But the fact of the matter is there's an overriding principle. And that overriding principle is I am your father. Same thing is true about your prayers. You want it that way. Ephesians 3 and verse 20, he says, he's able to give us exceedingly abundant, abundantly more than we ask or think. I don't just want him to give me more than I'm asking for. I think that's a wonderful concept. He's my father, and he is immeasurable in his creative genius. He has no boundaries. He's God. And it's that also, I do not have the scope. In Hebrews 12, you have... God compared to our earthly fathers. Remember? We had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father's spirits and live and etc.? You know what your daddy did if he was a good man and I assume he was? He always did the best he knew for you. And there were times when you asked for things and he would say, that's a good thing. Sometimes he would say, that's not a good thing for you. It's because he had a scope of experience. But I'm telling you, it's not to be compared to God. It's not to be compared to God. God God knows the, the past as well as the future. He is immeasurable. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. The very idea that God knows the world and what's, what's in it, and, and he knows what's going to happen before it happens. You know what? When I pray, every prayer that I pray, and sometimes I explicitly say it, but all the time I, I at least implicitly say it. Look, Lord... You're my father, and you know better about me than I do, so whatever I pray, I want your will to be done. Listen, I don't want to mess up. I could be asking something that will do terrible harm to, to me or to my children or to my family. I don't want to mess up. So if this is not within your will, no matter what I think, Father, I, I want your will to be done. Let me tell you something right now. You adopt that, that view of what Jesus, and that's what he's saying here, in Matthew chapter 7, and you can pray without doubt, and you can pray with confidence every single time. I want that. I really want that in my life. One more before I leave it. The next verse says, and whatever you do, you know, uh, what he says, uh, here's the golden rule. You know, you know it is doing to others as you'd have them doing to you. Whatever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them, for such is the law and the prophets. Now, you, I, you know, I read that down through there, and you say, well, he just changed the subject. I don't think he changed the subject. I think it's right along with it, you see, because the golden rule has the same principle, basic principle attached to it. Did you ever think about the golden rule that it has an overriding principle? It doesn't mean you do anything that you would like for others to do to you, because it, mean, it means righteous thing, only righteous thing. You take a judge in a court of law, and a defendant comes up, and he's, he's charged with some crime of which he's guilty, and the penalty prescribed is 10 years in the slammer. 10 years. But the, but the, but the judge is a Christian, and he thinks, yeah, but you know what? I, I remember what the Lord taught in the Sermon on the Mount about the Golden Rule, and I wouldn't want to go to prison. 
So I'm going to release him. You know, you could destroy the penal system in every country of the world with the golden rule. That doesn't make any sense to you. That doesn't make any sense at all. Do you understand that principle? Because even though it's not stated, the overriding principle of the golden rule is that it's plugged into righteousness, not to unrighteousness. So it is with your prayer. Your prayer may not be like Elijah's prayer. Elijah prayed for that boy to be resurrected, and that's what happened. He was a prophet in the miraculous age, and God saw fit to put the soul. Oh, God did it. Elijah didn't do it. God did it. But, but you remember this about your prayers and about praying. It's that your prayer matters to God. Can you hear this old preacher? God hears you when you pray, Christian. James says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What that means is that, that you can influence the heart of God with your prayer, and you must never forget that. But the second principle, which must follow right after that, is this. You're praying to your Father. The overriding principle is, I love you, I trust you, you're my Father. And if what I'm praying, no matter how bad I think it's the right thing, no matter how strongly I think this is what needs to happen, if it isn't right, if it isn't the best, don't do it. Don't do it. Thy will be done in all things. And that's praying with faith. I love Elijah. Elijah, he, uh, in chapter 17, there were three miracles attached to Elijah, and all three are filled with great and practical lessons. And thank you for being here tonight. I hope you're going to be able to come to many or all of these lectures. Let's enjoy this time of studying God's Word together. God bless you.